Welcome to the Power Hour. I'm Adrienne Herbert, wellness coach, international speaker and author. Each week I speak to a variety of guests from business founders to Olympic athletes, leading coaches, changemakers and innovators to find out their daily habits, their rules to live by and what motivates them to get up out of bed each day. Personally, I am on a mission to encourage, motivate and inspire. So I hope that the Power Hour will help you to achieve your personal and professional goals. Welcome back to the Power Hour podcast. Today's guest is a psychiatrist, New York Times contributor and author. Her new book, Real Self-Care, is encouraging us all to rethink what well-being and self-care is really all about. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Pooja Lakshmin. Thank you so much for having me, Adrian. I'm super excited to be here. Oh, me too. And oh, there's so many things that we're going to talk about today. I think that the well-being industry, the wellness industry, the self-care movement has, of course, had some really positive uh, impact for a lot of people. But it also has come, I think, with a lot of challenges. And I'm just excited to explore all of the things with you today. I want to talk about the idea of self-care and what it really is and what it really means and how we can prioritize our, our well-being. I want to talk about the guilt that many people feel when it comes to prioritizing themselves and prioritizing their own well-being. I want to talk about burnout and how people can recover from burnout because I think there's a lot of conversation about what burnout is but not so much um, advice on what to do and how to recover and loads of other things as well. But I think a great place to start, Pooja, would be to hear a little bit about your journey and your experience. And I suppose what led you onto this path of, of I suppose, redefining well-being for yourself. Yeah, absolutely. So I, like you said, I am first and foremost, a psychiatrist. I'm a physician and I specialize in women's mental health. Um, and I really kind of started this journey. You know, I, I'm, I'm over here in Austin, Texas. I'm in, I'm in America, you know, but um, my parents are South Asian um, and they were immigrants from the United, or from India. Um, so it was always kind of, you know, assumed, I think, you know, when you're some, when you're a child of immigrants, that there's kind of this, um, you know, pressure that you have as the next generation. And so it was sort of assumed that, you know, I would become a doctor, I would go to medical school, I would get married, I would do all the things that you're supposed to do as a girl and a woman. And, and I did all of those things. And then I found myself in my uh, late 20s, around 27 or so, just um, really depressed and burnt out and disillusioned, because it was like, I had done all the things that I had been supposed to do. I'd followed all the rules, but I wasn't, um, happy. And, and I'm, and I'm like hesitant to even use that word happy because it was more than that. I was, I was looking around me, you know, I was in my psychiatry residency training. I was looking around and I was like, you know, the, the things that we're being taught as psychiatrists to me seems like they weren't actually addressing the problems. So like, for example, if a patient comes in to the ER and, or the emergency room, um, and they are unhoused, um, you know, and they're depressed and they're suicidal. And, you know, the thing that we were taught is, you know, well, then you prescribe them an antidepressant, but this person's mm -hmm. real problem is that they don't have housing. Right. Or let's say the woman here in the States, um, most Americans don't have, you know, uh, uh, sick days, paid sick days off. So the woman who, you know, has a chronic medical condition and can't keep up with her job and gets fired, um, 
the problem is actually systemic, right? The mm -hmm. problem is in the workplace. The problem is inside the institutions. The problem is not with the individual. So anyway, I just was really um, angry about this. I felt really powerless. Um, I was going through really like what you might call like a quarter life crisis. So I, I got divorced. I left my marriage. I um, moved into a commune that um, was focused on female orgasm. I dropped out of my residency, you know, and my Indian parents were like really happy with that. <laughs> I'll say. Well, I was just about to say, because I have a lot of Indian friends and most of them are doctors. Yes. Um, and I know the kind of pressure that they talk about, which is kind of like, you can be anything you want when you grow up, as long as it's a doctor or a lawyer. <laughs> right, um, exactly, so exactly. I can imagine, I want to loop back to this, like <laughs> dropping out of your psychiatry to join a commune focused on female orgasm. I feel like we need to put a pin in that. So where did that even come from well and that that's the thing so for me I just dove really really deep into wellness right I don't I saw this solution and I thought okay here's the answer here's this wellness practice this is going to be the thing that solves all of my problems right like that's what I thought you like know a bit of an antidote to how you were feeling totally totally and you know I think I'm sure that many of your listeners can identify with this, maybe to not such an extreme, but different levels of this, where maybe you see like, here's the new, like in vogue diet that's being advertised on Instagram, or like, here's the new, um, you know, um, here in the States, like these bullet journals, it's like this whole process of journaling, right? Like there's just all these different things. It's like all sort of commodified, right? And it's very mm. consumer based and it's like, buy this thing, join this group, do this workout, go on this diet. And then the seduction, right? This is where it's problematic is like that you believe that something outside of you is going to be the thing to fix all of your problems, you know, is going to be the thing that gives you that true self of well-being. And, you know, for me, I spent two years with this group and, um, it was professionally, you know, I really profound for me. I started um, working at the Rutgers Neuroscience Orgasm Lab, um, where we, you know, researched female orgasm, the neuroscience of what was going on in the brain. Um, and now in my clinical practice, along with taking care of patients, women who are suffering from things like depression, anxiety, burnout, I also take care of patients who struggle with um, things like vulvodynia, which is a genital pain disorder. So it, it was really fulfilling for me in profess professional and personal ways. But I came to realize at the end of that kind of two year period that kind of throwing away my old life and joining this new kind of wellness group, you know, th that it wasn't the answer. All of my problems were still there, right? I couldn't mm -hmm. run away from it. I couldn't just pick up a new life and just be like, okay, now everything's fine. So ultimately I left and that was a really tough decision. And, and I was uh, really depressed and that was a really, really tough time in my life to sort of rebuild. And, you know, I came to find out years and years later that the story inside this group was actually quite dark. Um, but, you know, that was sort of like for me in writing Real Self-Care now as Pooja in 2023, who is 39 years old, um, that period a decade ago really deeply informed why I was so passionate about writing this book because it's sort of like, mm. you know, we all know that a bubble bath isn't gonna fix what's wrong in mm. our culture, in our society. 
And I know, you know, and I understand in the UK, there's some of the same problems that we have in America. Like, you know, for example, childcare, I understand in the UK is super expensive. Mm. Um, I know in the UK that the doctors at the NHS are, are going on strike, right? Because of working conditions and the way and the wait lists, right? In order mm. to get treatment for mental health services. I'm going off on a tangent here, but basically, I guess what I'm trying to say is that I have compassion for folks who are seduced by mm. these faux solutions because it's really hard to figure out how to get help and, and how to make these decisions when, you know, life is so expensive, right? Mm. Like, it's so focus, hard. <laughs> yeah, and the focus is often on, on, like, this individualistic approach. And there was quite a few things, actually, as you were talking that came to mind. And one is actually a stat that I wrote down specifically because I knew we were going to have this conversation. And the statistic is that in 2020, in the UK's estimated wellness market size reached £12.4 billion. So this kind of tells me two things, I suppose, from a business perspective, the businesswoman head on, you know, I do a lot of brand consultancy. And it's quite clear to me that this industry is booming. It's probably increased in the last two years. And of course, some businesses and some brands and some organizations are making a lot of money selling us wellness. Now, I also think what it tells me is that people want to spend their money on things that they think and feel are going to make them feel good, even if it is short, short fix, short term. So I suppose, you know, when you mentioned that it's like consumer based and it's this idea that like, of course, like, you know, a scented candle and a bubble bath, these things are not going to solve the root of the problem. And I think the downside of this is, of course, yeah, those fads and quick fixes and those kind of sometimes unhealthy and harmful products that were being sold. People might think, oh, this is going to, uh, yeah, this is what I need. This is the next thing that's going to help me to change my life or to feel better. But then I I suppose the upside, if, if there is one, eternal optimist that I am, is that if some of these products, if some of these services, if this kind of shift and focus to well-being is encouraging people to move more or to sleep more or to make some kind of positive change to their diet or their lifestyle, like, you know, I've read a lot of stats around Gen Z saying that they don't drink alcohol, like, you know, Gen Z and Gen Alpha apparently drink a lot less alcohol and they're much more focused on spending their money on experiences and travel rather than products. So I think there's probably, you know what I mean? Like nothing's binary like all bad or all good but I think where the problem potentially is is that it's often focused on the individual to say okay you have to you know figure it out yourself you know try these things do this thing like and we almost want firstly quick solutions so something that oh I tried that for a week it didn't work you know we want things to just be really quick and also this idea that a lot of these things are let's be honest expensive they're not accessible to a lot of people so yeah there's a lot to unpack in there but what would you say about I suppose the downside and the upside if there is any and how we can kind of I suppose yeah navigate the the fine line between the two I really like, Adrian, that you use that word binary because I think that really gets to the crux of what I'm trying to do with real self-care. I'm not trying to demonize wellness. And, and actually, chapter two of the book really dives into sort of the seduction that I'm talking mm -hmm. about. And, and I am framing these, quote unquote, faux self-care solutions of like the bubble bath or whatever it is. I'm calling it faux self-care, not because it's bad but because it is temporary and it's something outside of you. Mm. And in chapter two, I talk about faux self-care as a coping mechanism. 
and go into the psychological reasons for why we really feel like we need that bubble bath or why we really feel like we want to go on the juice cleanse or whatever it is. For some folks, it's like you need that escape, right? You just need a second not to think, not to worry, not to have to deal with anything else. Um, or maybe you're somebody who's kind of motivated by achievement or uh, productivity and efficiency, right? And so we turn to these different uh, coping mechanisms as a tool in, the, in that moment that will quickly take away some of those difficult feelings, whether it's mm. stress, whether it's low mood, whether it's anxiety. But what wellness has not done so far, so wellness has given us tools and, and mm -hmm. like you said, for many folks, those tools are not accessible because they're too expensive. But wellness still has not given us principles or perspective. And so that's mm -hmm. what I'm doing in real self-care. I'm saying, okay, here's these tools, yes. But the reason that the tools feel so burdensome is because we're not doing that internal work on the principles to actually understand why. Why do I need the yoga class? What is the yoga class actually doing for me? So I like to say, you know, one person's yoga class can actually be just completely performative because, you know, they're worried about, you know, whether they can hold a headstand <laughs> or not. And they want to make sure that they have like the right, you know, leggings or joggers, you know, <laughs> yeah. um, that's performative. Whereas another person's yoga class could be real self-care because that person is doing the hard work of having you know, the tough conversation with their partner to say, Hey, I actually, I really, for my mental health, I need to go to yoga once a week and doing mm -hmm. the decision-making of how to make that happen, being compassionate with themselves around giving themselves permission. Right. So in that circumstance, yoga is actually really deeply nourishing. So it's less about the thing and it's more about the process that you take to get there. And so mm. my takeaway or my whole kind of thesis with this book is that real self-care is a decision-making process. It's not yes. actually just one thing that you check off the list. No, it's just something that you need to bring to everything that you're doing in your life. Oh, absolutely. And I hate to use the word intentional because I feel like it's become <laughs> almost like, you know, it's like a tattoo now. Yes. But I do think that's exactly what you described is that, you know, having understanding the why, why am I doing this? And if you can keep that front and center in your mind, then hopefully like the perfect example that you gave you know, the, the reason for doing something and the reason for, uh, I suppose, even having the cultivating the discipline or, or creating the time, because, you know, time is something that I talk about a lot on the show, hence the power hour. And often people say they're time poor and they don't have the time to prioritize these things. And I think, yeah, the real word for me is just being intentional because it, it will require discipline. It will require some level of setting boundaries to create the space and time for you to do these things. So with that in mind, what are some other, you know, we kind of talked about what self-care isn't. What are some other I suppose things we should be considering, thinking about, practicing to to really discover what true self-care is. Yes. So in the book, I lay out four principles, right? Because we're talking about principles, not tools. And so the principles are number one, learning to set boundaries and dealing with guilt. Because we all know that especially if you're a woman, if you're a mother, if you're a parent or a caregiver, guilt is the first thing that comes up when you start setting boundaries. So that is step one. Step two is developing 
compassionate self-talk. So really looking at the conversations that you're having with yourself. And I will say for this principle, this one is the hardest for me. Um, I'm always somebody, I've always been someone who kind of rolls my eyes a bit when anyone says compassion, like it feels very woo woo to me. And, you know, like you're letting yourself (laughs) off the hook. And um, that's not not the self-compassion I'm talking about. In real self-care, I'm talking about self-compassion in the way that Dr. Kristen Neff, who is a psychologist who's really the foremost researcher on self-compassion, frames it, which is psychological self-compassion, looking at having new and different conversations with yourself. Um, So it's about your relationship with yourself, essentially. And then the third principle is getting clear on your values. And I've created a, a, an exercise called the real self-care compass. And this is how you get to your why. Again, Adrian, like we were just saying, like your why, the reason why you're doing all the things on your to-do list, the reason why you're spending hours chauffeuring your kids around to all their activities. It, it doesn't, it feels different when you know why you're doing it. We can Mm -hmm. dig into this a little bit more, but like the why and the meaning, like that's the antidote to burnout, right? Like really understanding your, your specific values and your values are going to be different than your best friend's values or your parents' values or, you know, your partner's values. And they're going to change over time. Exactly. They're going to change over time. Yeah. Sorry. I think that's the part often people miss because whenever I hear people talk about, okay, discover your why or figure out your values, it's kind of this idea that it's going to, you're going to find it. You're going to you know, carve it in in stone and then you're going to have it. And that is it. That's your value. And like everything has to be, you know, keep that front and center. But I think the most important thing is, of course, we have to commit to something, but then also being open to changing our mind or accepting that maybe in five years time, in 10 years time, maybe as maybe just one year, your values might change and probably have changed. And I think when people don't stop to assess that, they can kind of just almost become fixated, just like keep going on this path and beating the same drum when it's actually, yeah, they need to kind of revisit that and go, is this still what I want? Yes. Um, so the concept that I keep coming back to in real self-care is it's called psychological flexibility. And this Mm. is a term that comes from acceptance and commitment therapy, which is a third wave form of psychotherapy. And essentially it describes what you're talking about, like being flexible with how you engage with your thoughts and your feelings and um, being flexible with your values and understanding that at any given stage of your life, you're all, I think the other piece is like, we all have multiple values. We always, we all have like hundreds of values, right? But the priorities shift, things move up and down the ladder. As I was writing Real Self Care, I was actually, I was going through IVF treatments uh, to get pregnant. And I um, had a miscarriage previously. And because of my history, you know, for a long time, I was like really ambivalent about becoming a mother. I didn't know if that was for me. Um, and then I, I was fortunate and lucky that IVF worked and I got pregnant while I was writing the book. And I talk about this in the book and that in the, the, um, section where I'm writing about values, like I was facing this too, knowing as I was coming up on this precipice of becoming a mother and knowing that my values were going to shift and being scared, Mm -hmm. right? Because I had built this career as a psychiatrist, as an entrepreneur, as a founder, and all of that work was done 
with the luxury of time and space for myself. And I was about to come up on this um, huge transition, right? So I think it's like, it's okay to not only, um, I think maybe what I want to say is that it's like, okay to be scared when you're in those transition spaces, when you're in the, in the in-between space, when you know your values are shifting, but you don't quite yet know what the next thing is also. Yeah, absolutely. And also knowing how to prioritize them. Cause sometimes, as you said, we all have lots of things that we value. And sometimes when I've talked to people about this before this, the struggle they have is kind of prioritizing. Cause they're like, well, I value my career. I value my family and my relationships. I value uh, experiences and travel. And it's almost again, this thing of how can people, I think they struggle to think if you, you just got to pick and stick, pick one thing when actually, yeah, I think accepting that sometimes as you described, and also, I mean, my heart was just so filled when you said that you had had successful IVF journey because as someone who's done IVF and knows how challenging that is, I was so happy to hear that you said, you know, <laughs> that you that you were pregnant and that, you know, congratulations on motherhood. Um, but revisiting this, you know, values thing, yeah, just accepting that it's at different times and different stages throughout your life, it's okay for your value hierarchy to to change. And what's the what's yes. the fourth principle? So we have yes. boundaries, compassionate self-talk, values, and the fourth one. Yes. So the fourth one is power. But before we dive into that, I want to just respond to one thing that you said about values um, yeah. and, and sharing. So so a value actually isn't I value my career or my or I value my family. A value is something that you embody. So a value would be um, I value creativity mm. or I value um, self-expression or I value um, service. And so, so it has to be something that is um, describing a, something that you can embody. So, and this is a really important distinction because you can bring the value of, um, let's say, uh, creativity to your career and you can bring the value of creativity to how you parent and you can bring the value of creativity to how you spend your discretionary time um, in the little discretionary time that you have. Um, so that's an important distinction. And I think people get easily, people often conflate values and goals, right? And so it's mm. important to always remember that a value has to be a descriptor of something that you can embody. Um, so I just want to throw that out there. Um, and for the real self-care compass, it's interesting because the goals are actually secondary. And I was, as I was writing the book, you know, there was many goals that I put on my compass that I didn't get to, but because the value is the thing, right? That's okay. It doesn't mean that you failed, right? When you're following mm. your values, then it can take you in lots of different directions in terms of where you end up. And I know for me, I've always ended up in the most, um, fulfilling places when I was less goal oriented. Um, mm -hmm. but getting to that last bit. So power is the last principle and, um, really it's the culmination of all three and get, gets back to the crux of why real self-care is so important. And also I think revolutionary because we are doing this internal work in the context of oppressive systems. So whether those mm. systems are, you know, um, capitalism, whether those systems are white supremacy and racism or patriarchy and sexism, the systems, as we talked about in the beginning of this conversation, when I was describing my patients, 
you know, the system is the problem, but you have to do this internal real self-care work in order to keep yourself whole inside all of these systems. And the reason that I, um, you know, as a woman of color, as an immigrant, um, or as my parents were immigrants, you know, like as this, like in acknowledging my place in the world, I think it was really important to me to sort of center the fact that there are so many folks who don't have access to mm. the resources, to discretionary time, right, to childcare, to all these services that we all know are integral for mental health. So again, if you are somebody that does have some privilege, um, like for example, with my platform, like being a physician and being able to take the risks that I'm able to take, that means that you need to pour some of the energy that you have into back into your community, back into helping mm. others, like with power comes responsibility, right? And that kind of um, goes back to the roots of real self-care. You know, we all know the Audre Lorde quote about how self-care is self-preservation. Um, yes. And like we have, you know, black queer thinkers to thank for putting self-care in its most powerful form on the mm. map, right? And so I think we just have to keep remembering that and not um, minimize it. Absolutely. And I love, actually, I wasn't, I wasn't expecting that. And I really love the word power and the way you describe that power. And especially in relation to a principle for self-care, because I often think they're not positioned as being, uh, you know, uh, being connected. And actually, when I think about, I have a specific friend in mind right now who I know over the last, say, six or seven years, she's been really committed to doing talking therapy. She's been really committed to kind of doing real hard work um, to, to overcome trauma, to understand more about herself and more about all of the things that, you know, discussing around values and around what do you want to, what do you want to do and what do you want to achieve? And after watching her journey for the last, like I said, it must be at least seven years now, when I think about this friend, you know, when I, whether it's meeting her for lunch, whether it's talking on the phone, whether it's seeing her at a big group event, she is so powerful and and the only way i can describe it is she's very calm and centered and she's fulfilled and although she's not you know she's not preaching any kind of like toxic positivity around everything being great you know she has challenges maybe within her work or within her relationships but she always just has this kind of balanced measured you know she doesn't seem to like fly off the handle by anything or she doesn't seem super i don't know just reactive to things she's kind of just i go to her for advice all the time and this word power is actually it's very powerful to witness that when someone has done so much work to understand okay these are the things that uh, serve me and make me feel good. These are the things that actually, like you said, preservation, these are the things that I'm going to preserve myself from, whether that's relationships or people or family members or work environments. And as a result, I've, I've really watched her just blossom and thrive. And she's just almost like, you know, people say your best self or when they say it in this way, that's just, she really is like, she is living her best self and it's so inspiring. So I think actually that idea of power and being empowered once you understand these things, I mean, honestly, it's been a, um, it's been, I suppose, like a shining example for me to see and to kind of think, wow, doing that work really does pay off. I love that story because it's also not like you're pointing to like, oh, you know, she went on this wellness retreat or she started doing this external, right? It's like, no, it's like she 
made hard decisions, right? She confronted um, her trauma, right? She went mm -hmm. to therapy. Like everything that you described about what she did was very internally focused as mm -hmm. opposed to externally focused. And again, coming back to power, we find our power when we do take the time and the risk to look deeply at ourselves and have different conversations with ourselves. Um, that's where real power comes from. Um, it's not in the comparisons or the keeping up with the Joneses or the, you know, climbing the ladder, whatever ladder you're on, whether it's a career ladder or a motherhood ladder or a fitness ladder, right? Um, so I think that the power piece is... It was so important to me too, because I think this conversation of like, you know, at least here in the States, and I'm sure that a similar conversation is have, happening in the UK, of like, well, our system is such shit. Like every day you wake <laughs> up and there's something terrible happening. So it's always just like, well, yeah, like, of course I feel awful because the world yeah. is falling apart around me. Nobody seems to care. Like, what am I supposed to do? Like, I'm just one person, right? And so then you just, you know, are depressed and doom scrolling, right? <laughs> and, and it's like, well, no, no, like, no, you can't, you as one person can't fix climate change, for example, but you as one person do still have personal agency. You can make different decisions in your own life. You can show up differently in your relationships, at your workplace, in your community, and, and that's the crux of power. In the book, I talk mm -hmm. about sort of like this cascade effect in my clinical practice where I've seen patients do this work and then it impact, you know, the rest of their family or their workplace or these larger systems. And I think that fits with what you're describing about your friend in that she was able to um, embody the fact that, no, she doesn't have control over everything in her life. Like, yes, there's mm. tons of stuff that is out of her control, but the places where she does have control and agency, she was willing to do the work that was necessary to bring herself to a place of fulfillment. Mm, absolutely. And it's really, like I said, impressive to see. And it's, and it's encouraging to, to see that, as you said, it's not about, okay, someone who's from a kind of status perspective, it's not about, okay, earning loads of money or having all the things, or it's actually, yeah, really been powerful for me to witness that, that journey of kind of creating a, yeah, a really fulfilling life, a life that you love and a life that you can enjoy on your own terms and yeah as i say i'm continuing to to do that work myself because um you know we're all a work in progress and so i'm um, trying to adopt some of the, i'll definitely be adopting some of these principles myself um i've actually downloaded i've pre-ordered the audio audible version of real self-care so i'm really looking forward to it's lined up and i'm really looking forward to running and listening to listening to you because you narrate the book right Pooja, on, on i did i did narrate the book it was my first time doing a, a book narration and it was really fun. Um, I was nervous. Uh, I'd never yeah. done anything like that before, but once I got into it, it actually was just like talking to my patients. Um, you know, it was just like I was in the office with the patient. And so I think actually people, you know, I, I think it's going to be really great because um, it's sort of like a little mini dose of like you're in session with me. 
Um, Great. I can't so, wait for that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can't wait for that. I consume so many books on Audible. Um, I'm an endurance runner. So whilst I'm out doing oh, long runs, wow. I listen to I Honestly, I'm, I'm always sad when I get to the end of a book because I'm like, oh, no, like I have to find another one for my next run. So thank you. I'm really looking forward to it. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Okay, I feel as though I have a big confession moment, okay? I'm just going to just put it out there. So we've been talking about, you know, what what, what real self-care is and what it isn't. And we mentioned already a kind of, you know, the wellness industry and this kind of consumer-based side. But here comes my confession. If something, you know, we've all heard, if it makes you happy, then it can't be that bad. You know, if it makes you happy, then it's fine. And I will be the first to admit that I am often seduced by the products, the lotions, the potions, the things that smell nice, feel nice. And I don't for one second think that when I'm putting some night night serum on my face that it's going to do all the things that it says that it is but I really do enjoy the kind of ritual of it I enjoy uh I don't know I'll be honest you know lots of probably things that I don't need but I like to consume so I might like to buy uh you know books notebooks journals I I love candles I'm not like a self I don't know. I wouldn't say I'm like that kind of like self-care bubble bath kind of gal, but I do like stuff. And I've said this before on this podcast and I feel like a bit of a hypocrite if I'm like, oh yeah, you know, like forget all of that. Because even though I know it's kind of just a 15 minute thing that I'm going to enjoy, I still enjoy it. And I still like that I take that time to indulge in a way. Like, you know, we talked about guilt. Like for me, it's like the antidote to guilt. I'm like, no, I've I've worked hard all day. I've been for my run. I've taken care of the kids. Like this is my thing and I'm just going to enjoy it. So Pooja, tell me what what is going through your mind right now? <laughs> I get the sense that you're like waiting for me to like condemn you or something like that. No, I'm just no, I'm just trying to keep it real because I think some people will it. probably be it. in my camp as well. Yes, absolutely. And you know, there's actually a whole section in the book where I it's I think it's a little box that's called well, wait, what if I really like the wellness stuff? Yeah. Um and and I talk about how while I was writing the book, I actually this is while I was pregnant or doing IVF. I went to some Reiki sessions, um, which is totally woo-woo, right? And so which seems like the complete antithesis of what I'm proclaiming in the book. And so here's the thing. Like, here's why, again, coming back to it's not about the thing. It's more about the process. So I don't think we can demonize any one tool, whether it's a candle or whether it's a Reiki session. It's all about Mm. the process that you're taking to get there. So Adrian, everything that you just said right now, where you're like, I know that this, you know, nighttime serum is not going to fix all the problems in my life and turn (laughs) me into like a magically carefree, like fulfilled, you know, glorious person. I mean, you already seem like that, you know, Mm. uh, fully on your own on your Instagram page, but, (laughs) but right. You don't, you don't have illusions of like, this is going to totally be the thing that saves my life. You're Mm. just like, I actually like the ritual of it. So you're pointing to rituals are something that really help you 
ground, right? So it sounds like at the end of the day, after you've done all the things for everybody else, having something that smells nice or something that feels good on your face is a ritual that is calming and grounding for you. And you've thought about it. You've thought about what you like about it, right? Um, so to me, that sounds like a perfectly reasonable tool for self-care. And, and again, tool, right? So then keeping in mind that like, I'm sure there were phases in your life, like maybe when you were postpartum or maybe like when you were training really hard for your next race or something like that, where you didn't have access to those tools, or those tools that usually fit might not have fit in that specific period of time. So that's when you have to come back to the principles again, right? And figure out, okay, wait, I'm in a different season. So what are the principle, what are my, what are, what is my new tool, right? Cause yeah, you can't yeah. have the same tool in all the different seasons of your life. So, yeah, and um, also, sorry, also that's I my perspective. Yeah. Yeah, it's, no, well, thank you for sharing that. I think it's also, you're totally right, you know, which season you're in and kind of taking that time. But also I think understanding what you need at that time. So if I think back to times in my life, like maybe after I had IVF and miscarriage or when I've been through really challenging times, I was not thinking, oh, I can't wait to rub night serum on my face. Like, I'll be honest with you, the most challenging times or when I've really done, um, I suppose, difficult things or, you know, therapy has helped me or, you know, maybe confide if, if, if it wasn't a professional talking therapy session then you know confiding in friends like true friends who've known you for 20 years who you can just share everything with who will listen to you free from judgment like those kind of things were I suppose tools but I yes. think depending on the time and stage and phase of your life yeah understanding what you really need in that moment I think is is key here Yes, I love that. It's 100%. And, you know, in real self-care, I talk about my own therapy journey too. And, you know, I, I've been in psychoanalysis. There was a period of time where I was doing psychoanalysis three times a week on the couch. Um, and, and that was made possible because I had an amazing analyst who um, allowed me to pay sliding scale and I had insurance that would help me pay for it. Right. So like lots of privilege involved in that, having access to that tool. Um, I, to me, I think it comes back to what we were talking about earlier with flexibility and like maybe the values bit too, like not being rigid on any one thing and understanding that, again, like real self-care is actually about having this um, honest conversation with yourself and mm -hmm. allowing yourself to move towards the tools that actually are fulfilling at that time. You know, the other piece that I would add to this, just going back to the night serums and the face creams, is like <laughs> it would have been very different if you had said, you know, I use these because like I feel like I need to because I feel like like if you had, were talking about it from a place of fear or lack, you know, like I need this because I'm so worried about the wrinkles on my face. Right. Mm -hmm. Or I need this because, you know, I see that these other women I admire are using it. Right. That's that feels very different. Yeah. And don't get me wrong. Of course, I'm always thinking, I mean, I'd be lying again, 35 years old. You know, I want to say like, I'm not vain. We're all vain. So you're always thinking like, oh my gosh, maybe this is going to make me glowing and younger. And then you're like, no, it's not. Sleep is going to make you look better, not the cream. Yes. Yes. I, I am. a. I, I get Botox. I get Botox. Um, I haven't had it for a little while because I was breastfeeding. 
Um, but I hope that I can get it before I go on this book tour. We'll see. <laughs> oh my gosh. I am yet to dip my toe in the water of Botox. However, one of my good friends who's just been through a breakup and who would not mind me saying this, so many of our other friends are like, wow, have you seen her since she broke up? She looks incredible. And she does have that like glow, but she also tells me she's like, it's Botox. She's like, that is why I'm looking so good. Not because I, you know, like bounced back out of this breakup. She said, it's expensive and it looks great. So yeah, that's, we'll save that one for another episode. Mm-hmm. Um, but the last big topic that I want to discuss with you before we sadly have to conclude is, is, well, it's a big one, is how people can start to recover from burnout. And the reason I wanted to keep this in and kind of talk to you and prioritize this question is because I think if someone is experiencing burnout or if they know someone that is, then maybe they're thinking, okay, they just need to take some time off work and focus on self-care, you know, like stay in bed, go for some walks, read a book. And they're kind of saying that if you've had, you know, real burnout, so, you know, emotional, physical, mental, you know, your adrenal glands might be, um, you know, under a lot of stress and pressure, you, you real burnout is not going to be fixed with one weekend of rest. So how can people take some of the tools in your book, Real Self-Care, if they have or are experiencing burnout to help them to recover? Yes, that's a really big question. And I think when we're talking about burnout, there's sort of different phases when it comes to burnout. So in sort of the milder cases, you could take time off um, and you might find that when you come back, you're feeling better. But the more you kind of, um, the higher the volume is on the burnout, the more likely it is that that period of of rest or escape is not going to be um, the thing that fixes the problem. So, you know, we were talking a little bit earlier about values and how values and meaning are the antidote to burnout. And so when someone is experiencing burnout, um, they typically, it typically means that in whatever context they're in that has caused the burnout. Um, so whether that is a workplace that is toxic or whether that is, you know, in the parenting situation where maybe they don't have support at home, um, burnout comes with a loss of meaning. It means it, it, mm. the way it manifests is that you're going through the motions and you feel very um, distant from the tasks and activities that you're doing. Um, and it, you no longer feel connected to why it's important or why you're doing it. I wrote a piece for the New York Times, um, I think it was in 2021, called uh, This is Betrayal, Not Burnout. Hmm. And it was focused specifically on women who are employed outside the home um, and taking care of children um, and how when we use the word burnout, it often exonerates the system, right? Because it puts the onus of change on the individual. So I want to like, just sort of centered that in the fact that the reason that people become quote unquote burned out is so often because they're living and working in a structure that has not been designed for them to actually be human um, and have feelings and have needs in terms of their mental health. So again, um, I think if we're like looking or if we're wanting to talk about like, well, what do you actually do? One getting connected to meaning is definitely a first step. Um, not have everybody has the luxury of being able to leave a toxic situation, right? Um, you know, I wrote about my own burnout. You know, I've been burnt out so many times. It's like hard to keep track of <laughs> at this point <laughs> after 39 years, but 
my ability to be able to leave, whether it was like full-time academic medicine or residency training, it was always because I had support, right? That I could Mm -hmm. go somewhere else or do something else or take time off. Not everybody has that luxury. So I always hesitate to kind of put that out there as a solution because I know it's not um, on the table for so many people. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that if the idea of looking at your choices or looking at your values and meaning feels too scary for you, or if the answers that you're starting to get back, like if the answers that you're starting to get back are like, actually, I do really hate this job or actually like, I, I really don't like my partner or like whatever it is, that's a sign that um, getting mental health support would be a good idea. Um, mm-hmm. Talking to a professional or you know, talking to someone who you can really trust, who you can have a different conversation with. Um, the other thing I'll say is that you know, in my practice working with mostly mothers, like it's really common for people to spend years and years and years burnt out, right? And just kind of feel really scared about taking any steps to change, like worried that if if I were to start to set boundaries, if I were to start to make different decisions, like I'm really scared that I might just like run away from all of this, you know, I might destroy my life. And, and so there's a lot of fear there. And so that's where I would say, like, no, you don't you don't have to make any new decisions. You don't have to do anything big. Um, but maybe trying to find a place where you can have a different conversation. Um, and that's one of the reasons that I, I founded my company, Gemma, which is a women's mental health community, um, just a space that's it's not therapy. It's not um you know, medical treatment. It's it's a space for like just facilitated conversations where you can mm-hmm be with other women who are asking themselves some of these questions too. Mm, that was yeah, a very ba- roundabout answer to your question. So <laughs> No, it's great. I think so much of what you said, I'm sure people will definitely that last part about fear and around change and kind of the overwhelm of, okay, I've got to change everything um, can feel very overwhelming. So I'm sure that, yeah, being a part of a community and hearing other people's perspectives and sometimes you can kind of go okay maybe I can't do all of those things but I can start with maybe one thing so right. which is and a I perfect think part of right and like part of the fallacy I think is like this idea that when you're burnt out like that there's going to be just one decision that fixes everything when mm. the truth is that there's actually going to be hundreds of decisions and it's going to take time it's not going to be something that's fixed in a month it's actually probably going to take a couple of years yeah because it probably wasn't one decision that led to it in the first place as we know all the different layers of our lifestyle and our career and our commitments and our maybe kids and yeah exactly so it's it's yeah one step at a time and so with that in mind perfect segue into one thing which is of course how we start our day every day now for me the power hour is you know the concept has always remained the same which is just about being intentional and taking that first hour of the day to say what do I want to do? How am I going to spend this hour? What, you know, what's coming up for the rest of the day? And and yeah, how do I want to feel? And again, we've mentioned a lot in this episode about kind of accessibility and privilege. And I understand, I understand truly that I am in a very privileged position in just in the sense that I have ownership of my time. You know, that was probably one of the, one of my 
values or the way I define it anyway is that I I definitely you know I saw my mum growing up I, I grew up in a single parent household and I saw my mum working incredibly hard doing so much having so little resource and access and having to just try and kind of do her best and make do all the time and, and essentially living with burnout if, if I'm as I reflect now, she was probably incredibly burnt out for most of that, but she never had agency of her time. She never had the choice to say, okay, this morning I'm going to do this or this weekend I'm going to do that. It was always kind of, yeah, I don't feel like she had much agency and choice and freedom in her life. And I think that's really what, if I think about it, what set me off on this path of like, actually, I want to be time rich. You know, it doesn't matter so much about money for me, but I want to be time rich. I want to have choice. So... Oh, that's a very long way of, of bringing to ask you about your power hour and the first hour of your day. And I now know that you're a mother. So what does the first hour of your day typically look like and what do you try to include? Yes. Well, here I'll admit that I feel scared to share my first hour <laughs> with you because it is really not self-care at all. It's a judgment-free um, zone. <laughs> um, in that the, the first hour of my day is getting waking my son up, getting all of his bottles ready with, you know, with my partner, feeding, feeding my son, getting him off to daycare. Um, and then, and that makes possible the rest of my day to be able to work. Mm. But the first hour of my day is actually done, um, taking care of everybody else. Uh, maybe if we, you know, I'll say hour two after he's off at daycare is when, um, I'm able to sit down and look at what I have for the day and really center for myself. What are the two to three most important things that need to get done today? What are the items, whether it is a piece of writing, whether it's a meeting that's happening, whether it's a podcast interview, like what are the the couple things that are the places I need to bring my best energy? Mm. And for me, like mentally centering that for myself really helps to give me some scaffolding for the day because of course there's like a million fires that come up and I, you know, I wear so many different hats, whether it's taking care of my patients clinically or, you know, founding a company and running a company or with, you know, writing, you know, it's just, I'm always kind of toggling between so much stuff. And so, um, giving myself the, uh, touchstones to know what are the things that actually are the most important helps me. Yeah. Which things are, are essential. And actually I have one more question about that. What do you Mm -hmm. do? Like, do you have uh, an approach? I suppose you mentioned before that, self compassion uh, compassionate self talk is a challenge for you and i couldn't relate more so when you said about you know you stop roll your eyes at that word and that was literally me as well so as somebody who potentially you know you're probably quite hard on yourself you might set grand expectations for yourself how do you approach let's say you've got two or three things on your list to do today how do you approach and and respond if you're not able to do those things so for whatever reason maybe you just feel distracted or maybe other things get in the way and you get to the end of the day and you go oh my gosh Pooja you had to do these three things today and you haven't completed them how do you approach that yeah I'm I'm getting better at surrender so I'm getting better at when that happens, just saying, you know what? I tried my best today and it's okay. It'll be okay when I get to it tomorrow um, because it usually is okay. And, and recognizing, I think like for me also, meditating a lot on what is enough and starting to feel more connected with enough um, 
like that, that question is one that, um, feels grounding for me. And so when I'm not able to get to stuff, I think of it more as I reframe it for myself that it's not for lack. It's not for my, from my own lack that I wasn't able to get to something important. It was a marker of the fact that I have so much to be grateful for, right? Mm. That um, it, things are overflowing a little bit right now and that's okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So bringing it from, I guess, like trying to get out of that scarcity mentality when it comes to time, I completely mm -hmm. agree with you that time is, is our biggest resource and our biggest luxury, especially yeah. if you're somebody who, who, you know, I know you are Adrian and I'm sure many of your listeners are, if you're somebody who's a creative or who wants to, you know, put good into the world in a new and big and different way time is a question that always feels really, really hard. <laughs> mm, yeah. And I love that you got used to described about it spilling over because essentially that's what it is, isn't it? And your life is so full. I often say my life is colorful. And what I mean is it's full, you know, there's, it's vibrant. There's so many things. And of course that can become, you know, overwhelming and it can be like, oh my goodness, how many things do I going to try and do and spinning too many plates. But actually I love that kind of mentality of framing it in that way. That's like, this is a good problem to have. You know, everyone's problems this is a good problem to have because your life is so full. So yes, if anyone else is feeling that, like, oh my gosh, there's so many things, I'm spinning all the plates, I'm trying my best to do it all, but I'm not getting it all done. Just remember that is a great place to be because your life is full and colorful. Pooja, thank you so much for joining us. I have loved this conversation. I honestly feel like we are, I don't know, separated at birth. So many of the things that you said I could really relate to and I've just really, really enjoyed it. I hope that for everyone else tuned in, I feel like this is a telephone conversation with a friend that people can now listen to. Um, it was such a pleasure to be here with you, Adrian. Um, I, I am excited for more conversations to come as it's, I'm confident there will be more. And, um, and yeah, I, I hope that folks really um, enjoy real self-care and um, and you can get it in all the places that, that you can buy books. And um, you can also find me at Gemma, G-E-M-M-A, women.com um, to join the community. Brilliant. We will share a link in the show notes as well. And thank you as always for tuning in and listening to the podcast. Please let us know if you are enjoying this episode and also share it with someone else who you think would like to hear from Pooja as well. Thank you so much. And I'll be back next week with another episode. Thank you, Dr. Pooja. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Mm. 